0: Michael Jordan is known as the greatest basketball player in the history of the NBA. But this didn't come without many failures along the way. It was his commitment to the game, in spite of his failures, that led him to succeed. In high school, he tried out for the varsity basketball team in his sophomore year. But he didn't make the team, because at 5'11", he was deemed too short to play at that level. Despite this, after high school, he went on to lead his University of North Carolina team to the National championship and then joined the Chicago Bulls in 1984. He quickly emerged as a league star, entertaining crowds with his prolific scoring and securing six NBA championships for the Chicago Bulls. Jordan said, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I have lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I have been entrusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Unless Jordan had stayed committed in the midst of rejection and failures, he would have left his basketball dreams back in his high school gymnasium. I thank you for your support. Now I can go home and put a piece peace the game of basketball. Thank you, much.
1: If there's one group of words that summarize one of the greatest athletes of our time, it's words like this perseverance, faithfulness, real commitment. Now, I laughed when I got this video because you know I'm the most athletic person on the staff. (laughs) But as I watched this video and reflected how timely for our family, how significant this morning... Because what we see demonstrated actually in a non-spiritual way in a sports venue is something that is desperately, desperately needed, not only in C4, but every local church around the world that claims that Jesus is Lord. It is the understanding of covenant, the understanding, the the re-understanding of commitment, that it is through a long-term commitment that we see the greatest impact and result. If you're joining us for the first time today here or online, you're joining us in the middle of a series called Unless. This is not a series where we are asking God to do a new thing among us. This is a series designed for us to stay in tune with what God is sovereignly choosing to do already among us. This is us keeping up and catching up with Jesus. Pastor Dave started preaching a few weeks ago, and he said, unless we keep holding and believing on what God has promised our church. And then the next week he came, and he said, unless we keep up with the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that we are in a posture individually and communally, that we are listening, and then when we hear the yes, we act. Last week I preached, unless we share boldly, unashamedly, the gospel of Jesus, then what Jesus has started among us in this season will be dampened or stopped. And yet today, friends, today, this conversation that we're about to have affects all the other ones, and it's this. Unless we choose to commit to church, what Jesus is doing among us will stop. What a brilliant video, because what we see in this video is the ups and the downs and the failures and the brokenness and the profound successes, and that is a great image to have of a church and a family, isn't it? But see, when we get to conversations like this, if you've done church for a while, we always start in the wrong spot. Most of us, devotionally, personally, in connect groups or as a church, we think about church commitment institutionally or even organically, but we always start with us. And that is fatal every single time. See, we can't start with us if we're going to talk really about commitment, if we're really going to talk about long-term faithfulness to church and each other and really getting involved in relationship and really seeing the church, not institutionally, but biblically and organically, begin and continue to flourish here and around the world, then we need to start somewhere else, and His name is Jesus. See, here's the point we've got to catch this morning. If we start with us, we always will end up walking away because all of us aren't that good-looking and we're sort of ugly spiritually. But if we start with Jesus and our eyes are on Jesus and we know what he's done in us and we know what he's promised to do and we know that he is, that he is, that he is the head of the church and our eyes are on him first, guess what? We actually may do this with each other right when a tweetable moment, here it is. Look up before you look beside. If you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. In the book of Hebrews, this author is unpacking to a Jewish audience the profundity of Jesus. The power of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, and it's so interesting because in Hebrews chapter 4, all the way through chapter 10, he makes a direct link between our understanding and commitment to Jesus, and oh, by the way, his sovereign commitment to us and each other. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, if you got virtual, physical, navigate there, turn there. Listen to the word of God this morning. Josh prayed it would be fresh. Scripture is always Fresh if we're willing to hear. It reads like this. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, since we have a great high priest who has he- ascended into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. See, if we're going to talk about commitment to the local church and commitment to the idea of church, let's start with the head of the church. For us today, at this moment, and you online, whether you're on a plane, train, automobile, you're on the... Go- Listen... To sense this this morning, to feel this this morning, to understand the power of Jesus. These few lines, we need to commit ourselves to understand the images used from the Old Testament. Jesus here is called, interestingly, the great high priest. As Nikki led us so powerfully this morning, she began this conversation. In Israel, in ancient times, the high priest, one man, oversaw the worship of all things god centered He stood between Israel and God. He was the main representative between God's people and God himself. Think about this this morning. Out of millions of Jewish people and hundreds of millions at that moment of non-Jews, he was the only person on earth that could walk right into the privilege and power of God and stand in the gap between earth and heaven. One person. The ultimate act every year that he did was on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into what we now call the Holy of Holies, the place where God's very literal, palpable presence was found on earth. All people could not exercise this privilege. If you know the Bible, it said that if you walked into God's presence unannounced, you would die. Why? Because God's a thug? No. Because God is absolutely holy, and he cannot stand sin, and sin dies in his presence. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year under God's conditions, under His fixed times, and under His prescription. Think about this. Can you imagine the moment? A human being would walk into the Creator's presence, whose very DNA is the opposite of sin, and what would he ask of God? Amazingly, shockingly, he would ask that a holy God would choose mercy. As he walked in, the high point of the act happened this way. You can read about it in Leviticus 18. It says that he would take blood of a bull that had been sacrificed with his fingers and he would sprinkle it on the front of what they called the atonement cover. And then he'd sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. Picture this. This priest would stand before what we call the Ark of the Covenant. The chest made from Acadia wood, overlaid with gold. The box contained one thing most of the time. It was the Ten Commandments, the physical reminder of the covenant, the commitment between God and his people. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, if you know, there were two stunning, huge cherubim angels that were carved into the top of this. Why? Because God is called the King of Angels. But between the angels was what is called the Mercy Seat which served as the actual throne of the invisible presence of God on earth. And notice, that is where the blood is sprayed. That middle point. Don't you love, as a Christian already, even in the Old Testament, that God's throne on earth is called mercy? God's own throne reflects the heartbeat of what he wants to do among every cruel, broken, sinful, rebellious human being. Mercy. The priest would come and he would take this blood so carefully and he would sprinkle it. One, two, three times, four times, five, six, seven. Why? Because in Scripture, seven was the number of perfection. Back to Jesus. The high priest, the temple and the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the blood, the seven times, all of them are foreshadows of what would happen in and through Jesus. See, here is the power of the Bible when you read it cover to cover. Don't you understand this morning? Jesus is the high priest. And oh, by the way, Jesus is the God of angel armies. And Jesus is our mercy seat. And Jesus is the sacrifice. And Jesus is seven for he is perfection and it is his blood. That's the Jesus we worship here. He's everything, and that is why he is not called the high priest here. He is called the ultimate, the great high priest, because he has completed everything. His work is permanent, once for all. There is no need anymore for someone else to stand in front of us. That's why we learned last week in Romans ten nine, Christ is the culmination of the law, so there is now righteousness for anybody who believes, huh. And where does Jesus do this work? Does he do it in some temple made by human hands on earth? No, no. It says that he ascended after his death and resurrection right into heaven. Think about this. Jesus ascends back into the presence of God the Father. Jesus came from that environment. Jesus ascends back into that environment. He lives in that environment. And he will always, oh, how I love Jesus. He will always represent us before God the Father. He stands for us. He covers our sin. He, he prays for us forever. He forgives us. And think about this this morning. He is the only one that can stand in, walk in, be comfortable in, and be welcome into God's fully disclosed presence. Why? Because Jesus is perfect. And oh, side note, he actually is what? God. Only God can walk into his own presence without any fear and desire and declare mercy on people that don't desire or deserve mercy. Jesus is the great high priest, and he is called the Son of God. As I've preached here before, we we confuse this so much. See, the early Christians, when they confessed Jesus is the Son of God, other Jews who had not converted became enraged at them because they understood the implication. When you call Jesus the Son of God, you are saying that he is God himself. Why? For there is only one God, and if you have the DNA of God, you are God, for only one holds that DNA. This is an explicit declaration that Jesus is greater than every prophet, every priest, every religious thinker, every media magnet and mogul that has ever existed, greater than kings and politicians. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. That's why Paul, of course, would later say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead then, and only then, by the way, you will be saved. So because of his work and because of who he is, then the author in chapter 4 says, now hold on, hold firm. This is used 47 times in the New Testament. This is the call. Hold firm to the identity of Jesus. Hold firm to the faith that you have in Jesus. Don't deny him in your heart and don't deny him in public. But then it goes farther. C4, listen, lean in. Then he says this, hold firm to the work he's already done in your life. This is the beginning of the connection between commitment to each other and the work of Jesus. If you begin not to hold firm to what Jesus has already declared and sung over you and spoken over you and declared over you, you will never come to the place where you commit to church for real. Why? Because you will continue to spend your life wondering if God really loves you and if you're really in So many of us in church have not moved from milk to meat because we don't believe Jesus is for us. Church, he's for us. He's for us. He's not against us. Only when we begin to deeply embrace his work for us will we ever put up, survive, and love a lot like us. He says in verse 15, something about Jesus that distinguishes him from every religious idea that has ever existed and every so-called God invented on earth. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, to sympathize, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we all are, yet he did not what? Say it loud. Sin. Jesus. Jesus. God himself, the creator of all things, is not removed from us. He walked with us and he walks with us by his spirit. He is among us, the powerful, exalted, risen king of kings and lord of lords. The God of angel armies has been among the darkness, has been in the thick of brokenness. And never forget that weakness here means sin. Jesus did not sin But lean into the passage this morning if you want hope. He was tempted in every single way. We don't see all of this recorded in the Gospels, but this verse is a declarative verse that we need to get so we can get to each other. This is saying that Jesus was tempted sexually, emotionally, mentally, physically, financially. Jesus was offered everything that's wrong. I don't know if you know Galatians 5 well. It's the famous sin list that Paul writes, and then the fruit of the Spirit. But it's very interesting to read that list and think about Jesus being offered these things for real. See, this verse is declaring that Jesus was tempted to get involved in repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. That Jesus was offered to get involved in the crazy idea of accumulating a mental and emotional garbage so many of us hold on to in this church. Frenzied and joyless grabs at happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never-satisfying wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved. See, God was tempted to this. Divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions ugly parodies of community and the like. This is what our high priest was offered. And yet he did not give in. See, everyone listen close this morning. Temptation and sin are two different animals. Temptation means seduction and offering. But it is not sin. As I was praying for our family this week and coming to this point... There is a moment for a few of you here at this moment. Please listen. At least three of you. So many people in church never get on with the powerful call of community. Because we actually believe we are something we are not. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. And yet so many people in our community think that you have given into sin because you have been tempted and you do not make the distinguishing understanding, so you live a life of personal defeat and you haven't even sinned yet. All of us, let's be honest, we've had the most bizarre thoughts, the most gross sexually perverted thoughts about people. We go, where did that come from? We've, we've had anger and hatred and lie. Like, if you think about your thought life, just what comes into your mind when you walk down the street or you're just sitting by yourself, sometimes you sit back and you say, oh my goodness, where did that thought come from? I, this isn't me. And then the lie is, see, the devil shows up and says, see, you perverted little thing, you sick thing. You are that, by the way, because you thought it. No. That is a lie that needs to be unrooted out of this church. Just because temptation is offered to you, if you say no, you have not sinned and you are still good. The evil one continually will give you the most bizarre, graphic, weird things. Physically, sexually, power-oriented, relationally. Why? Because he wants to get you involved in that. And if he can convince you, you've already done it before you've done it, he wins. But Jesus shows us here that you can be tempted and you don't have to sin. But even if you do, we have a high priest who suffers with us. He experienced the full intensity of this and yet he resisted. And so since Jesus is who he is. And since Jesus is work is perfect, and since Jesus is not distant and so transcendent and, and not imminent at all that we can't know, but we do know, and that he has suffered alongside us and yet not given in. That is why in verse 16 it says these hopeful, encouraging, powerful words, let us then, let us then, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our what? Time of need. (laughs) Catch this this morning, whether you're a Christian and you're 80 or you're 12 years old or somewhere in the middle. Listen to this. Don't run from our God. There is no need anymore to run from Him. Don't you understand? We have confidence to enter the holiness of God because of the work of Jesus. See, when we are at our worst, when we actually have fallen or we think we've fallen or we don't feel God for a while, our natural instinct is to run from him. And yet Jesus says at the moment where you feel you have to run, stop and run towards him. So many other Christians in our community live powerless, non-connected, non-supernatural lives because we don't think Jesus wants us to show back up. He wants you to show back up. Our high priest died for this very reason. Run to Jesus when you screw up. Run to Jesus when you fall. Run to Jesus when you're doing well. Run back to him all the time. Why? Because he promises us in our time of need, what will we discover? Mercy and grace. Does anyone want those? I do. I do. Mercy means forgiveness. Grace is that unbelievable relational word. say, well, John, okay, I got to work on some stuff. But I thought you were talking about church today. Oh, I'm about to preach on church. (laughs) You see, from chapter 4, from chapter two four all the way through chapter ten, the author of Hebrews works out this amazing work of Jesus. But halfway through chapter ten, suddenly the implication switches, and he says, Now you know, and as you begin to function and walk in this thing, you know about and you've experienced in part, but you embrace him more. Now I'm gonna show you the implication on each other. Hebrews ten nineteen. Turn there quick. This is key this morning. Do not harden your heart at this moment. Do not get distracted at this moment. Take notes, but don't go to Facebook. Therefore, he repeats himself, verse 19. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters here at C4, many of you online, since we have, here's the word, confidence. To enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Since we have a free, open, transparent way, we can approach God boldly with absolute confidence. Why? Because we're amazing? Why? Because we're stronger? Why? Because God needs us to love him so much? No, we do it because of Jesus. Verse 20, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain. That is Jesus' body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, here's the connection. This access wasn't available before Jesus' death and resurrection. 2,500 years ago, this conversation did not exist in the human experience. It does now. Since we now have a new living way, isn't this amazing? Why is it living? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. This is the culmination of what we learn in the book of John. Jesus' self-declaration, and he answered, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. See, Jesus is the actual way back home. He is embodied truth. There is nothing hiddenness, hidden about Jesus in a sinful way. He is absolute life, and that's how you access him. And see, he uses this to description of the curtain, back to the Old Testament. See, between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple, when you approached it, there was a curtain. Early Jewish literature tells us that it possibly the curtain, it's much more like a rug. Imagine a really big Persian rug, like a massive one, the thickness of a man's hand. Now, I want you to think about a rug that thick. And Jesus says, I'm that new curtain. The very curtain that stopped humanity from walking right into the presence of God. Jesus says, well, I've replaced that. If you know the Good Friday story, you know where I'm going. Jesus, as he lay dying, just before he uttered his words, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? As darkness fell for over three hours, the sun stopped shining. What does it say in Luke 23? It says, as Jesus lay dying, he was not even dead yet. It says that curtain, thick as a man's hand, was split from top to bottom in the temple and ripped in half. Why? Because Jesus had provided a new way home. Since we have... Absolute confidence, and since He is the high priest over us. See, catch this today. Since Jesus is our high priest, and since Jesus is perfect, and since Jesus suffers with us, and since Jesus really is the Son of God, and since Jesus has dealt <clears throat> with every barrier, and since Jesus is really giving us a way back home, because of all of that, now. You as a Christian, we as a community, are invited, commanded, given, and brought into the privilege and responsibilities of church. Since we have confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done, and since that is a fact, and since it's not disputable, now let us begin to walk in an ever-fresh, ever-recent, ever-permanent, dynamic reality called community. So this is what he says. In the next few verses, he gives us three commands. Number one, verse 22. Church, hear this. Let all of us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I want you to catch this this morning. This is written to people that know God through Jesus. That implies that you can know God and not draw near to him. What does he say to us? Draw near to God. C4, come very close to Jesus. But here's the question. Why do so many of us, even long-termers, not do it? I love when I read someone this week who said, the fact of the matter is we, along with our mom, Eve, and our dad, Adam, shrink from that awesome presence. We find it much more natural to drift away and run from God than to ever draw near to Him. See, so how does that work out? Well, we leave church. We turn out the preacher right about now. We return to old sinful habits. We just stop meeting with God. We stop reading our Bible. In this fallen world, he writes, the gravitational pull is always downward to the world, downward to your own flesh, downward to the devil, and actually at times, most times, it makes an idea or a move towards God the most unnatural thing you can do. But see, that's the point. Drawing near to God is unnatural. It's supernatural. The very first thing that happened with God and Adam and Eve is they hid, and we've been fighting that ever since. And yet God, he writes, pulls us to draw near to him. And he calls himself, calls us away from ourselves and those natural pulls. He invites us and he promises us and they still stand. And our part is to simply to respond to his call and approach his throne at all times. Our sympathetic, our full of holy and yet love high priest has experienced the temptations to bolt and run. He's been with us in our humanness and invites us back to his throne of grace. Therefore, we may approach with unabashed boldness. Let us make the approach, he writes, today, for we will find help in our time of need. Jesus has made you clean. You are not guilty positionally right now. Your conscience is clean and clear. Why do so many of us, why do so many of you run run from and, and hide from and, and and really not talk through and, and admit and confess in detail why do so many of us in this church run from the god that we supposedly love and want to know jesus has declared that you're clean no matter what happened to you last night last week last month or may i say 40 years ago that thing that sits in the back of your memory bank that you refuse to face deal with or talk through see you're clean the invitation is what God has been doing in our church, and we've been praying for. Oh, come, see for, and be personally renewed. Oh, come, see for church, and experience real godly revival. What is revival? It's amazing that Josh did this because he did not know I was going to say this. Revival is when a church so walks with Jesus that there are no secrets left, no hiddenness net left, because we have decided that there is freedom with God. Can you imagine 1,600 people and there's nothing left in the closet to talk about? Because it's all been confessed and being worked through and wrestling with. It doesn't mean it's closed, but it's being honest. Draw near to God because he gives us sympathy, cleanliness, and change. There is freedom when we choose not to avoid God. He says because Jesus is this, this amazing thing in person. The first command communally, let us, not let you, let us draw near to God. Here's the second thing, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who is promised is faithful. Jesus' work is immutable. It is unchallengeable, it is absolute, it is incontrovertible, it is indisputable, it is undeniable. Jesus' work is God's yes over every person sitting here and online. But see, if you doubt Jesus' work, And his work over you. You will end up being fickle. You'll vacillate. You'll move back and forth. But why go there? Jesus is faithful. Why do you give more power to your own heart than Jesus? Why do you allow struggles? And why do I? Struggles or pain or history or lost dreams? Why do you allow your family or friends or enemies Here's one. Why do you really allow the devil's words and thoughts and his very feelings and desires to have more power than Jesus? Jesus is faithful. He's victorious. He's our our great high priest. And he says, hold on to the work and faith that we all share. Why? Because he who started this is faithful. There are so many lies in the, well, there are thousands of lies sitting in the heads of this audience this morning. Lies that do not submit to the work of our master Jesus. And yet Jesus is coming for us as a church and he is coming to say, I'm going to destroy every single lie that chokes your spiritual life because I have come to give you life and life abundant." Since we have a great high priest, let us draw near to God with confidence, never, ever shirking, never going, I'm not really sure he wants to hear from me. No, running every time, holding absolutely. But here's the pragmatic question for all the good people in the audience. They go, but John, that's really cool, but how do I do that? Well, the answer, many of you aren't going to like. It's this. It's us. It's us. See, look at the next verse. It's community. Unless you commit to community, I mean really commit to community, all of this will begin to fall apart. That's why the author says now, and summarizes this phenomenal theological and spiritual call, and he says, so now let us consider how we can spur one another along to love and good deeds. Well, here's an unbelievable thing. This is talking about church community, not institutional church, but gathering church. Well, how do you love someone if you're by yourself? What is love? Love, we found out, is patience, and it's kindness. This is real love, by the way. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's hard not to dishonor others if you don't know anybody. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices in truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. He says, because we have access and because our conscience is clear and because we have all this going for us and we can draw near to God, he said, let us now consider, let's have an imagination how we can spur all each other on to love. And he talks about it in community and then he says, and good deeds. What's good deeds for Christians? Well, everyone ready? It's called serving. Not sexy, but honest. Serving. And how do you serve best in the church? Using your spiritual gifts. That's why one of our core values in this church is is that we believe that every believer is called to impact those around them. Through loving, joy-filled, gift-based service. Why? Because the spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power that God has given all of us. Because so many people say, John, what's God's will for my life? Well, let me start with this. Find out your spiritual gift and use it. That's a guaranteed place, we know. And so what does he say here? He goes, oh my goodness. He said, if you want to see this begin to really work out in your life, he says you've got to spur people you know face to face with love, and you've got to serve people. How do you do that? Through good deeds, spiritual gifts. It's all in the context of community. See, that's why he says in Romans, like Paul says, you know, Jesus is like a body, and he's the head, and we're all the members. And we've all got different roles. But see, it's always Jesus plus each other. Never Jesus plus one. This isn't dating, by the way. This is a family thing. So let's hear this again. Let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not, uh uh-oh, not, uh uh-oh, not giving up on meeting with each other like some are in the habit of doing, some of you this morning. But encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. See, don't you, he says, don't you dare, don't you dare give up, forsake, abandon doing church. By forsaking each other, you forsake Jesus. You cannot... You cannot, you cannot walk with Jesus without each other. Christianity is not an institution, it is an organic movement of people that have met the same Savior, and as we meet Him, we're called in with each other. Jesus is the head, and we are the body. If you cut off the head, what happens to the body? It what? Dies. And if you cut off part of your members in your own body, if I cut off three fingers today, those fingers would die. And I would not function properly. I'd have a disability. And it is the same in church. You cannot cut off parts of the body and expect those parts to live and the body to function right. You, he says this, you must meet regularly with each other. A constant committed involvement in the life of a local church rather than the off and on mentality which our culture says is just fine. It's not fine. It may be fine for them, but we're slaves to Jesus. If you stop meeting with each other, if you stop making worship services a priority and community optional, if you start making teaching and accountability and here it is, Christian encouragement optional, it is fatal spiritually. It is fatal spiritually. Everything that Jesus has done for you is to set you up to do this. As Bill Hybels used to preach so well, the local church, whether you like it or not, is God's design to be the hope of the world. And not just C4, we'll take them all. So why do so many of us make church optional? Well, let's be honest, we're lazy. Or your life has no margin. And so you choose other things, and they're good things. They're not sinful, but you have to make a choice. Some of you are short-sighted. Many of you, it's sports and leisure. Let's just be honest. Some of you are exhausted. You're like, oh, honestly, like John, you're preaching. I just want waffles on Sunday morning. I get that. It's okay. Some of you have a superiority problem. You just don't think you need people. Like, actually, some of you really don't like being led. So why would you need church? Some of you are in pain. Some of you are let down. And here's an interesting thing. In most other cultures, you know how this verse plays out? Some of us are actually being threatened by the authorities. How would your life change if driving to church this morning would mean that maybe your kids were put into child services and you were thrown into jail? Would you keep meeting? And yet there's millions of Christians, and that's their experience. And yet Jesus would say, you got to keep meeting. Why all of this? Because God angered? No. He wants you to be encouraged and he wants you to survive and he wants the world to see difference. There's an amazing image found in the scripture uh, in in nature and one person put it this way. We're not self-made and we're not self-maintained. Can I just say that again, everyone? Everyone just look at me for a moment. We're not self-made to lie and we're not self-maintained. We need each other. You know, the very famous redwood trees in California. You know which ones I'm talking about, the massive ones? When you talk to people, park rangers, they say there's something extraordinary about those trees. He says they are gigantic, almost prehistoric-like trees. He says uh, if if you talk to them, they'll go they'll they'll tell you that their roots are unbelievably shallow, and you go, what? He said, oh, do you know how they stand up? He said, how? It's interesting. See, they interlock each other's roots, And those massive trees hold each other up under the weight. Oh, church, don't you understand and see that without interlocking roots, without us spurring each other on towards love and good deeds, in a world bent on self-centeredness and self-gratification, we will topple. What does meeting mean, though? I mean, I've been in a lot of churches that are pretty messed up. How about you? Anyone? What are you saying? No, I'm joking. It's good. See, pastors can get up and abuse this text. They do, regularly. They can use this for spiritual manipulation. You have to be at everything the church does, or you're not faithful. The Bible says so. Am I saying that? Not in your life. Do we believe you should have a family? Yes, we do. Go hang out with your family. Do we actually believe you should know non-Christians? Oh, there's an interesting thought. Yes, we do. You should know your neighbor's. So are we saying that you have to be phonetic and you have to be at everything all the time, 24-7, church, church, church? No. Here's what we're saying. Four simple things you find in Scripture. Very simple. You do not give up doing worship services together. You don't do it. From Acts chapter 2 forward, every single incarnation of church took this thing that's happening right now unbelievably seriously. We worship together. We take communion together. We sing together. We sit under the Word of God together. We fellowship, whatever. We hang out together. Non-negotiable. Am I saying all the time, 100%, you get a golden start? No. But two out of six isn't good enough. It's not. Here's the second thing. Through all of the scriptures, as the church grew and churches got bigger, including in Acts 2, what happened? They also met in homes. We believe, we call them connect groups in this church. You may come from another church. To Listen, you got to do big well and you got to do small well. You have to know someone face to face. you, you got to know someone's story so you can love them and encourage them. If you don't know them, you, you can't do this. Am I saying that once you go into a connect group, you're there forever? It's like this drudgery, 25 years and you're out? No. That's why Joanna LaFleur worked out this great thing called on-ramps and off-ramps join a connect group for 8 weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks and then stay or move on. The point is large and small, non-negotiable. And and, and here here's the third thing. You got to serve. I mean, now I'm really excited about our community these days because we're seeing more people serve than we've ever seen, but it's still not enough. Not cuz we don't have enough workers. It's a God thing. This is what we are made to do, serving with our gifts. You've got to serve regularly. You've got to commit to local church regularly. You've got to commit to a small group for at least a season in your life. And here's the last one I've never heard preached. Some of us, many of us, want spiritual friends. And many of them won't be in this church. And that's fine. Many of us have one or two spiritual friends who live somewhere very far away. or but It doesn't matter. Spiritual friendships. Deep, real friendships. As you get older, people over 40, 50, 60, 70 keep telling these. Every generation I speak to, as they go up 10 years, they say they're less and less friends. Am I right? People in that age, yes or no? Yes? Yeah. But they'll say there's usually one or two. And men are they the real deal. They don't have to come to see four. But don't think that replaces all of this. And don't think that replaces all of that. The point is because Jesus has done such a profound thing and because we have access and because the world is looking for a community that is real, the author of Hebrew says we are committed to each other and then he ends by saying this because the day is approaching. This is so significant. The day is approaching. In other words, we are going to be encouraged because Jesus is coming back. But here's the other thing. He also is going to say this. You're going to give an account on how you did community. You're going to talk to Jesus about connect groups or no connect groups. You are. You're going to talk about Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings because this is how we encourage and keep going in the faith. Without each other, our spiritual life shrivels, dies, and it becomes narcissistic or dead. If you want to walk in the power of Jesus and the great high priest of what he's done and you want, it's, it's connected here. And if you move on to another church, God bless you. But then it's connected there. But the point is you cannot separate Jesus from his body. So here's how I end today. As the team comes out and we get ready to respond, interestingly, in communion. I want to say this to all of us. And don't disconnect here. This is when we lean in. If we want to keep up with Jesus in our church, I want you to hear this. If we want to keep up as we pray for a genuine revival, as we're praying for many, many more to meet Jesus, here's what we need to do. Everyone ready? Here it is. Number one, unless we commit to the Jesus of Scripture, unless this Jesus is the one you really know, not the one you make up in your head, this is the one you know, you'll be shut down. But if you know this Jesus, things get clearer. Here's the next thing. Unless we believe what he's actually done over us, many of us need to get to the point where we say, I actually now believe what Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 says over me and my family. This is true. I'm going to boldly access God no matter what's happened. This truth will overcome so many lies and lack of power found in gaps in our church. Unless we commit to Jesus, unless we believe what he's done, and unless we continue to commit to draw near to God, my begging and wrestling with you as my family is that we draw near to God. Don't run from God. Seek intimacy, go to his word, pray, do community because there is help in our time of need. As we're praying for revival, revival is a season in a church's life where intimacy and nearness is wanted, expected, and run for. Do not resist. Do not harden your heart for the Lord is close unless we hold to our faith unless we commit to meet each other unless we commit to do this for real we're praying for 10,000 people there's 1,500 of us whatever it is but don't you understand we need to commit to this so there's something for them to come to we have no room for selfishness anymore this is an all or nothing game We need to take this in a serious manner in a deep way that many of us have never done before because this is about others, not just us. And here's the last thing. Unless we commit to live our life knowing we will give account. Think about it. Jesus, our great high priest, is coming back and we are gonna speak to him. And he loves us and he's done this to build us up. We pray for renewal, revival, and awakening. Revival is when we continue to shed selfishness beyond belief to the point of bone marrow pain. But it's what we're made to do. So stand with me as we get ready for communion. And I want to say to some of you who have been faithful, please everyone stand. Some of you here and online who have been faithful, listen to my words this morning. Jesus says, well done. No, really, some of you need to hear this. Well done. Thank you for your years of being faithful. But others of you need to come to a place. I don't care your title or rank or who you are or where you've come from. And you need to say this, everyone look please, this needs to be a good new day right now. Where I say that Jesus and the church, things are going to change with me. So if that is you and you need to say, I need to change my thinking or I need to commit in a new way. I want you to raise your hand right now. Don't, just raise it right now. And I'm going to pray for all of you. Okay, hi, 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 hi. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, for these people who are being honest, for some reason or another, uh, what has been preached has touched them. Lord, our prayer for them is now, change their attitude, their understanding, their will towards you first and foremost, and then to a broken family called church. Holy Spirit, do something new in them, we pray, that will be lasting. And all of us pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. And lastly, I just say this, And you can join me in this prayer. This is uh, a dangerous prayer. Holy Spirit, our request out of a pure motive is that you would now send the, (laughs) Jesus, send the Holy Spirit like like a hound. And I use the image intentionally, like a hound from heaven to literally go and get every single person that knows you in Durham and loves you but has run from the local church and get them back. I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to heal their pain, help them with bitterness, unforgiveness. Before we pray for the conversion of thousands, we pray for the return of thousands that do know you but are not believing what Jesus has done or are not connecting back to a local church. Lord, help us to be ready to confess our own sins when they come back because we've hurt them. But we ask, Holy Spirit, do not dog them. Dog them until they are back. Do not let them squander what you've started in their life. We ask this in Jesus' name. And now, Lord, as we take communion, meet us, remind us that you are a great high priest who's forgiven us of all of our sins. And everyone said, communion will be served. If you're a Christian, you are welcome to it. If you're not one yet, just don't take it because you've not embraced him. If you're on the run from Jesus, don't take it. If you're struggling, do it. But let's respond honestly under the word of God. Amen.